0: Welcome to another episode of the Tom Schirmer Podcast. Uh, thanks for choosing to hang out again this week. I hope you're doing well and, and keeping safe. We are, of course, in many places seeing an uptick in COVID cases, so hopefully we can see that take a downward turn uh, sometime soon and that you and your family are staying safe and healthy. Uh, all things considered, I'm feeling pretty good this week. Uh, my fantasy football team is on the verge of 5-2, and two, so it's been a solid season so far, but listen, Who knows? As I've experienced in pretty much every season past, things can unravel rather quickly. Any of you who play fantasy football know exactly what I'm talking about. Your feedback is always welcome, as I always say. I've been reflecting on segments and format now that we are six episodes deep, and uh, you may see some slight adjustments to things going forward. I'm just trying to make this a more enjoyable listening experience for you. If you have uh, suggestions, send them to me. Email uh, tomshimmerpod at gmail.com or on the Twitter accounts. My personal Twitter account is at Tom Shimmer, or you can send them via the Twitter uh, handle for the show, which is at Tom Shimmerpod. I am thrilled to have Tim Stewart joining me for the interview this week. Tim is the head of school at the International Community School in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. We focused our conversation around three things the, the pandemic in an international setting. We talked about the ins and outs of international teaching as well and you know how does somebody pursue a career in international teaching. And we focused on personalized learning, which is something I know Tim is really passionate about. In the news includes a story out of Texas about teacher training and ongoing support throughout teacher careers, uh, as well as an update on the revisions from the province of Alberta. You'll recall in a previous episode, I mentioned that Alberta had announced a shift in direction and the minister had talked about uh, a change in sort of what they were doing as far as pursuing curricular changes. Uh, Some recent documents have come to light. Some information has been made available. And so I'm going to talk a little bit about the most recent development in the changes in the Alberta curriculum. Uh, Spoiler alert, not good. Anyway, uh, assessment corner, Uh, I got a question this week about the correlation between high school grades and college graduation, and as always, we finish up today's pod with Tweets of the Week. So that is the plan for today. Let's get to it. Tim Stewart is coming up in a few moments, but first, don't at me. But I've got something to say about parents, and that is that parents have the right to be heard. If you've been teaching for a while, then it's likely you remember the way things were pre-internet. You know, no email, no cell phones, no websites. And even by today's standards, a fairly pedestrian landline system. The way parents used to contact teachers is they would call the school's phone number, leave a message, and ask that the teacher return the call at their earliest convenience. The clerical staff would, of course, take the message, And they put that little pink phone message slip in your mail slot. Ah, yes, the little pink phone message slip. Now, if you were like me, you know the feeling. As soon as you saw that little pink message in your mail slot, your thoughts immediately went to uh oh, what did I do wrong? So I'd quickly run the movie of the last few days in my head and think about if there were any things I screwed up. Did I yell at a student? Did I make someone cry? Was I insensitive? I'd rack my brain, adding more stress than I needed, thinking about what possible grievances this parent was calling me about. But then, of course, still prior to returning the call, my thoughts would then swiftly turn to indignation. You know, how dare this parent question me? I'm the teacher. You see, this is what's wrong with parents today. They believe all the things their kids tell them about teachers, and they get all up in arms. I mean, back in my day, if I came home and said the teacher was mad at me. My parents would ask me what I did to deserve it, and on and on my thoughts would go. My informal research tells me that those little pink phone messages were disproportionately responsible for so much of the extra stress teachers felt. God forbid you play a little phone tag with the parent. The anticipation would take on a 3 o'clock high type anticipation, and kind of atmosphere. You feel like Jerry Mitchell waiting to get his beat down from the new kid. Now, side note, 3 o'clock high, totally underrated 80s movie, right? Now, so that was the anticipation. Now, what actually happened when I finally connected with the parent on the phone? Well, nothing close to that. It almost never went to the place that my imagination did. But that's part of the problem. I came at the conversation from a defensive position, anticipating that the only reason the parent contacted me was because of an issue. And I wasn't alone, trust me. There were plenty of my colleagues who felt exactly the same way because we talked about it. I mean, anyone who says they didn't have that little pang of stress about what they might've done wrong when they saw one of those pink message slips in their mail slot is not telling the truth. Now, I have to say also that my school-based experience is all middle school and high school, so I can't speak directly to the K-5 experience, especially for the very youngest of grade levels where I know there is, for the most part, a different kind of communication rhythm and relationship between parents and teachers. It's, it's just different. Parents have the right to be heard and we can't come at these conversations immediately defensive. Now, parents do not have the right to be disrespectful or unreasonably demanding, and I've got plenty of those stories too. You know, the number of times I've been sworn at or threatened either in a face-to-face meeting or on the phone in all of my different roles is far too many to count. I did learn, though, through all of that, a very important technique when you're on the phone with a parent who has just unloaded a number of F-bombs on you. You know the one, the parent who's just ranting over and over and makes it difficult for you to get any more than two or three sentences in before they jump back in with another F-bomb assault that would make a construction worker blush. You know the conversation that's going absolutely nowhere Other than, it seems the parent is unloading on you relentlessly, and you have no idea how to bring this far too long conversation to a close. It's a simple technique, and it worked every time. Admittedly, I've only used this technique three times in my career, once as a vice principal and two times when I worked at the district level. It's a sort of, you know, in case of fire, break glass kind of strategy, so reserve it for when it's only necessary. Okay, here it is. You ready? Hang up while you're talking. It's genius. You see, if you hang up while they're talking, they're going to know you hung up on them. But if you hang up while you're talking, they'll think you got cut off. None of the three parents ever called me back. Now, I have to say, the first time I did it, I was ready for the callback and, you know, the blowback that might have unfolded, you know, after they'd figured out what had happened, but they never did. I was almost certain they would call the superintendent, it would become a big deal, but I had just had enough of being sworn at. They never did that either. It worked like a charm. Now remember, this is a last resort, so don't be hanging up on people too quickly. (laughs) Look, in all seriousness, I know that parents at times can be unreasonable and unruly and outright impossible or worse. Some parents will try to belittle you or threaten you and that's never okay. And if anyone feels that that could be a potential in any face-to-face meeting or anything like that, you know, have one of your colleagues or better yet, have an administrator present. You know, I have like many, so many of my administrator colleagues sat in on meetings that, you know, between parents and teachers that I know my presence kept from escalating if you feel it's dangerous or you feel like something's sort of going to potentially go sideways, then make sure you protect yourself, right? You you have the right to be protected from being mistreated. It happens. It isn't most of the time by any stretch for most teachers or most parents, but it does happen. So be mindful of that. Parents can be wildly unreasonable, but they still have the right to be heard. We have to remember that parents are really just advocating for their children and despite their poor demeanor or their misguided approach, they still need to be listened to. I learned a lot when I worked at the district level. One of my responsibilities at the district level was parent complaints. So whenever any parent throughout the district followed through on their threat to call the superintendent, they got me. They got me first. And, you know, I would try to resolve the situation with the parent before it actually went to the superintendent or reached the board level. Empathy and understanding go a long way two things can be true. You can empathize with the parent about their position, but also believe they are wrong. Often parents just want what is best for their children and somewhere along the way they believe that there was a wrong that needs to be made right. They need to be heard. One of the most bizarre phone calls I ever had at the board level was with a parent who wanted a refund for a field trip. Now this isn't the most outrageous or aggressive kind of uh, experience but it was pretty bizarre this mother had called to request a refund for a field trip her daughter's class was going to take to a place called science world now the date no longer worked for her family's schedule and she wanted a refund but let me be clear she didn't want a refund of the money she paid she wanted the school to cut her a check for her daughter's portion of the fundraising the school did so she could subsidize her own trip with her daughter to Science World at a separate time. Now, the number of levels upon which this is so wrong are too long to list, but needless to say, you know, we did not grant her request. This was a 30-minute phone call, and I tried patiently to explain to this mother three different times exactly why the school was not going to cut her a check. Near the 30-minute mark, she said to me, You're not hearing me but that's not really what she was saying. What she was saying is, you're not doing what I want. The irony was not lost on me. We had had a 30 minute conversation about something that was pretty simple. And to this day, I'm still not sure why I didn't use the hang-up technique in the middle of one of my sentences. (laughs) I was hearing her and I told her that I'm hearing you, but your request is unreasonable and unethical. And I told her that. This is the fine line between hearing parents and overreacting to every demand. When parents say, I'm a taxpayer and I pay your salary, or when they get aggressive, it can be really uncomfortable and and tempting to give in. I remember early in my administrative career, a father becoming very aggressive with me and, and threatening me in my office. And my office wasn't very large, so it was a pretty tight space. He was standing, he was shouting, he was threatening. It was an uncomfortable moment for sure. As I pushed back and told him that the way he was conducting himself was unacceptable and that the meeting was over, I stood up and asked him to leave. Now, when I did that, I put my hands in my pocket for two reasons. One, I had my keys in my pocket and I did wrap my hand around my keys just in case. And two, I wanted to put my hands in my pocket so that I didn't inadvertently react to anything that he did too quickly and it would sort of be you know, come back to, to bite me. Look, I'm not trying to come off as some tough guy or anything like that. That's, that's not what I'm saying. But in that moment, I was legitimately concerned that this father would do something irrational, and I wanted to protect myself in case things got heated. I didn't want to overreact to anything that occurred, so I, I was thinking about it. Now, luckily, the father reluctantly agreed to meet the next day, and and when he had calmed down and everything sort of the next day, and he, you know, we found a way to resolve the situation eventually. It was not a good situation. And he sort of apologized, not really. I, I, I don't know if he was embarrassed or, or what, what have you. I, I don't know. But despite all of that, he still had the right to be heard. I didn't like his bedside manner. I didn't like the way he spoke to me. But we still have to hear parents. Look, sometimes we get it wrong, and parents point that out, and we got to be willing to consider their perspective. This has happened to me many times, well, I shouldn't say many times, but this has happened to me several times during issues of discipline where you rush to judgment, the parent makes you aware of other information, and as it turns out, they're actually right, and I was wrong. And sometimes you just have to accept that, and that's just the way it is. Sometimes they're out of line. You know, with all of that, I think my most important lesson in all of my experience, was to learn how to approach parent conversations as neutral as possible. One of my favorite expressions is, experience comes from poor judgment, so this was definitely a learn by doing experience for me. Now, by approaching these conversations as neutral as possible, you're going to avoid reacting to or becoming emotionally invested in a confrontation that actually hasn't happened yet, thereby avoiding a certain level of bias as you approach the actual conversation with the parent. No, look, they're not your boss. And you don't have to acquiesce to every single one of their demands. But they are an important stakeholder, arguably the most important stakeholder. And they do have the right to be heard. Okay, joining me today for the interview is Tim Stewart. Tim is the head of school at the International Community School in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. Uh, previously, Tim had served as the executive director of strategic programs at Singapore American School. He's also been a high school principal in Singapore and also as well as Jakarta. Uh, he's been an international educator for most of his career, having served in Ethiopia, of course, Turkey, Switzerland, Indonesia and Singapore as well. Uh, He is also the co-author of the book Personalized Learning in a PLC at Work. He is the editor of the anthology Global Perspectives which highlights PLCs at work in international schools. He's also contributed book chapters to other anthologies and of course, Tim is a well-known speaker. Uh, Tim and I met in Ethiopia in October of 2018 at the PLC at Work conference he hosted at ICS and among the many countless highlights of that conference and believe me, uh, there were a ton because that was my first ever trip to anywhere in the African continent. I uh, was doing my first outdoor keynote, which uh, was just a spectacular setting. Um, ICS is a beautiful campus, and I was so grateful for the opportunity to travel there, to work there, and to get to know Tim and the staff at ICS. And I am grateful to have Tim joining me today uh, for this interview. So, Tim, welcome to the Tom Schimmer podcast.
1: Hey, Tom, it's great to join you. I know we're in different time zones, but it's great to see you face-to-face.
0: Absolutely. What is it? 6 a.m. for me, 4 p.m. for you, something like that? Absolutely, yes. Yeah, we have to navigate all of that. So, Tim, let's start with what is obviously on everyone's mind these days, and that is COVID-19. Most of us here in North America sort of point to March 13th as our last normal day, when everyone was racing home from anywhere they were in terms of traveling. Uh, And obviously, a lot of different states and provinces have been on various restrictions and quarantines uh, since then. So, Was it the same timeline in Addis that sort of March 13th? Like, walk us through the timeline of sort of from pre-COVID through to today in terms of navigating the school experience and and, and how this pandemic has unfolded for both the teachers and for the students.
1: Yeah, that's a great question, Tom. Uh, Yeah, interestingly enough, being here in Africa, uh, we were watching the pandemic kind of sweep through Asia. And, uh, and then kind of starting to spark into Europe. And uh, you know, I remember being at a conference in New York City in February uh, with 500, I was speaking at a conference with 500 uh, heads of school from all over the world and we were kind of starting to watch the news and seeing, you know, here we are going to the theater. Uh, and I, w- I was watching uh, To Kill a Mockingbird with 500 other people crammed into this little theater uh, in New York City. And uh, we end up going home and everything's fine. We end up actually hosting a PLC Institute at the towards the end of February, uh, where we have speakers from all over the world again come, including people like Mike Mattos, uh who came uh, to join us uh, and, uh, and everything. And all of a sudden we started realizing, yeah, this is actually a thing and, and we're, so we're observing it. And as we're getting closer and closer to spring break, the problem with international schools is that we, all of our, our clients, our students, come from 70 different countries all over the world. Uh, and, and then during a spring break or a Christmas holiday, they disperse and go all over the place. So, we were about to send 2,000 community members out into the world to Italy and to Korea and to China, uh, and then bring them back. And and at that point, there were zero cases of COVID in in the country of Ethiopia. There were zero documented cases. But on March 12th, uh, we were just about to release, uh, you know, to finish for, for spring break, and we said, if we send out all of our teachers out and they go all over the world and then they come back to Ethiopia, we're gonna be actually culpable and actually responsible and liable, if you will, for having brought COVID into the country, a country that where the medical infrastructure is, is such that, that uh, getting COVID here is, was certainly, at least at that time, certainly not a desirable outcome. Uh, with actually, at that time, there was only one ventilator in the entire country. So we actually decided to, uh, the day before spring break, we we canceled school. We grouped all of our teachers and gave them a quick training on online teaching. We sent everybody for spring break and we said, don't come back. Uh, and right. uh, And so we said, wherever you go, bring your laptop with you because you're gonna be teaching online after spring break. And so that was wow. kind of our beginning, very, very similar timeline. All of our teachers also from all over the world ended up spreading out throughout the world all of our students so most of our students spread out around the world and then a week later we started teaching online until the end of the school year. Mm-hmm. We ended up with you know multiple months of online teaching kind of like everybody else. Uh, and I think you know for us um, obviously being in a developing country that that is, is a little bit of a scary thing but at the same time we, we have seen that uh, for some reason Africa, in general and ethiopia specifically has been spared much of uh, the carnage that uh, we've seen in north america particularly the united states and whether it's altitude you know living at eight thousand feet where people's lung capacity is just extraordinary here or whether it's the the uh, national average you know age which is very very low here or for whatever reason uh people tend to be asymptomatic here uh, and, uh, and our death rates actually out of uh, 110 million people, there's only we've, we've only had uh, 1,300 deaths in, in Ethiopia. So comparatively, uh, we've been spared a lot of it. Now you know, and, and now we are actually entering into our sunny season, so we're hoping that uh, the worst is behind us. But, but still, now we're back. So we opened the uh, school back uh, four weeks ago. Uh, so we're on campus, all of our students wearing masks, all of our teachers wearing masks, social distancing, uh, taking temperatures at the gate. All of our st- teachers, all of our parents are, are not allowed on campus. Normally we're a very community-based school, as you know. Uh, and uh, and so far we've been very fortunate that, uh, that the cases that we've had in our community have been quite minor, and we've been able to do contact tracing and, and isolate than before any kind of spread, so we're we're considering ourselves very fortunate. Obviously, you know, a face-to-face educational experience is is a is a luxury that uh, we all we all want. But um, but the, these the you know times have changed, and and I think that the dial has shifted educationally. So it's going to be fascinating to see the the global shift. This is one of the first times the last, you know, forever, that there's been a global situation that has changed, will change education forever.
0: Yeah, no kidding. Tim, that must be just, I'm thinking back to when you had to make that decision. Uh, you know, you are the head of school, therefore, ultimately, it is your decision. But can you just maybe Help us understand, are you in contact with, with uh, anyone else in terms of like local government, State Department? Uh, who, who is helping yeah. you make that decision at that time? Because obviously that must have been a tremendous amount of pressure to figure out you know, the, the possible ramifications of spring break and all of that. So maybe walk us through quickly a little bit of that uh, process that you went through back when you had to make that decision.
1: Yeah, that, that's a great question as well because, uh, as an international school, much like most international schools around the world, our clients are mostly from the diplomatic community and from the international business community. So, we have uh, our children are children of government officials, our children are uh, State Department children, Canadian Embassy children, USAID, uh, Food for the Hungry, World Vision, you know, all of the the heads of all the international NGOs, they send their children to our school. So we have quite a few advisors that we tap into on a regular basis, including people from WHO, literally people that are in charge of WHO for the country of Ethiopia or the CDC uh, for the country of Ethiopia. So we have a lot of advisors that are that are kind of our parents uh, and then we've created kind of a, a COVID task force, if you will, that really, that we meet with regularly to analyze the data, analyze um, all of that so that we can make very, very informed decisions. But there is a lot of pressure because obviously, uh, if we shut down uh, our school, that means that will, just one organization like the US State Department has 100 students with us. And so those 100 students are now at home and these are US State Department employees and now they have to modify their lives because we've just shut down schools so this is something that we do in partnership with many of our organizations but ultimately you're right i am responsible for this organization for the 460 employees that work at the school and then the thousand plus students that are here and ultimately the 2000 community members beyond that so um, but it, it is uh, these are interesting times but i i have actually found that our community has rallied around uh, safety and wellness and, and security uh, in ways that I've not seen before. So it's actually been really exhilarating uh, to see the community come together like this.
0: Well, there's nothing that you would receive in any sort of you know, training or doctorate program <laughs> or anything that would prepare you for this situation. So obviously this is experience that you just can't buy and, and something that we would all just not be prepared for. And it's interesting, you know, obviously in schools in North America, uh, public schools, private schools, et cetera. They're all informed by public health. They're informed by, so, uh, you know, all of the different sort of organizations and, and, and governmental organizations. And so it's interesting, you know, for you being, uh, having to, to navigate both the local, uh, you know, laws and expectations and regulations, but then also you of course have a clientele that is predominantly, uh, you know, outside, you know, mostly American, but, but you have, uh, from everywhere and you're being advised because your school of course is, 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 um, you know, supported by the State Department, you're being advised by the US expectations, et cetera. So I'm just wondering about, like, you know, is that one of the major differences of, of, of maybe handling the pandemic in international school? You've talked a bit about it already, but just some of the differences, I'm sure you have colleagues and friends that are in North America and they've talked about their experiences and, and the differences between what it's like to handle the pandemic, um, versus you know maybe what it's like in North America. You've talked about a few of those things, but maybe any other things come to mind in terms of the differences between the 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 school experience?
1: Yeah, I think I think the biggest difference for me was the sense of social responsibility that we have as an international community. And, and as you know, there's a lot of nationalism that has happened uh, during this pandemic. We've seen kind of borders closing. You know, my wife is mm-hmm. Canadian She was stuck in Canada for for 10 weeks and I was in the US for 10 weeks and we were separated because of nationalism. The border had never been closed before. Uh, And so as as countries around the world are are becoming more and more nationalistic, we represent everything that is dangerous uh, to a nationalistic society. So we represent people that are flying around in airplanes, coming from italy from korea from china from iran and and bringing in the, the thought that we would be the ones responsible for bringing COVID into this country was just in, unbearable and i think that that's really the weight of responsibility that we felt we all felt as an international community is that we didn't want to be the ones responsible for that eventually it did get into the country and uh and and we were obviously impacted, but we didn't want to be the ones who accelerate that. And I think that's probably the biggest responsibility. The biggest difference uh, was that we were having people from you know 75 different countries coming into our country. With regards to our protocols and our, our COVID playbook, we follow a lot of the same ones that you would be using in North America because we're following with the CDC and the WHO, as well as the Ethiopian government's uh, criteria for reopening. Um, And I think the other thing is is we are all here by choice. As an international school, our students and our parents choose to be here. And so when we opened up, we opened up our campus, but we also opened, we provided the opportunity for those who wanted to start completely online. So we still currently, uh, we have about 560 students or so, on campus right now, but we have 300 plus students who are actually still studying online, and they may still be in Canada or in in North America, and will be coming at some time in the future. So again, the, the idea that it was by choice that we provided the online experience for those who chose to be online, I think was also a little bit of a, maybe a liability coverage uh, on our part to say, well, if you want to be on campus, recognizing the risks that there are by being all together, uh, even though we're all wearing masks and social distancing, et cetera, mm-hmm. there's still an inherent risk in that. And and you choose to come here, that's fine, mm-hmm. but you can also choose to continue your educational experience online. And I think that was right. also something that's quite different uh, from mm-hmm. some, yeah. some public schools in North America or around the world.
0: For sure. Where. Yeah, the, uh, I'm also thinking about um, Staff. One thing I've learned about international schools is that there is a fair amount of turnover every year in terms of staff, just finding other places to work and new, going on a new adventure around the world, and 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 trying to onboard new staff in this uh, in this environment. So, what was that like? This, you know, especially this fall when you have you you probably did some hiring prior to COVID, uh, and and then all of a sudden you've got to bring people on campus for this this fall or at the start of school. So. Uh, what was that like, and what were some of the challenges you faced in trying to bring uh, staff uh, into Addis and get them connected to the school as as new staff members?
1: Yeah, it was quite an ordeal. Uh, you know, many of our staff members that we hire, you're right, we hire them starting in October. Our our hiring season starts in October for the following year, so we hire many of our faculty members. And many of them are, are currently or were currently overseas. And so they were in Saudi Arabia, they were in Uganda, they were uh, in South America somewhere. And many of those countries shut down entirely. Airports were shut down. So it was actually quite difficult and challenging to actually get them to come to Ethiopia. Uh, but we offered you know, voluntary resignation packages. We offered sabbaticals for those who didn't feel comfortable Leaving their home, this may not be the right time for them to to leave their family or leave the their their developed world healthcare system that they were under at the, that point, point. Uh, and so we really also created this uh, this choice based. If you want to be here, we want you here, and we'll bring you here, but it's not for everyone, uh, and so we had to also kind of offer options for people who just wanted to take a year off and say, Hey, listen, I'm going to travel. You know and around europe for for the time being and and i'll come in a year uh we we provided those opportunities for teachers as well
0: yeah so let's let's continue on this thread with international education i mean you know tim it's it it, you know we certainly are all trying to navigate covid and and hopefully we can get back to some sense of normalcy uh sometime soon but i want to pick up on this on the thread of international education, because I'm just, you know, I've been fascinated by it for about a decade now because I had my eyes opened in 2011. In 2011, I did my first international workshop and it was in Ho Chi Minh city uh, at Saigon South international school. And I'll tell anybody who will listen to me. If I knew this international Teaching was a thing back in 1991. I would have been all over it. I would have been so gone. So let's talk about your journey, Tim. Let's talk about why international education? What what was it about international education that you found initially alluring? And then what has made you stay international all these years?
1: Yeah. So for me, I'm one of the fortunate ones whose parents uh, moved overseas when I was a young, young boy. So my parents moved to France when I was four years old. So I grew up internationally. I grew up in the French school system. And then when I was in high school, ultimately went into an international school in Germany. So I'm a product of international schools in that sense. And then I went off to university in the U.S., did my student teaching in the U.S. and Chicago area. Uh, and just realized very quickly that you know, the, the kids that I understood the most, the kids uh, that I was going to have the most impact with, uh, were international kids, were kids who, who had a hard time answering the question, "Where are you from?" They were the kids who spoke multiple languages. They were the kids who, who had been, you know like me by the time I was in ninth grade, I had been to eight different schools in four different countries. Uh, and, and I think it was, you know, important for um, for me to to be in a in a, in a school environment where I could actually relate to kids uh, in a better way or in a deeper, more meaningful way than maybe somebody who had grown up in the same town their entire lives. So, so for me, it became quite natural that I wanted to to teach internationally, and I started teaching in Turkey, then moved to Switzerland, and then. You know, went back to the States for a bit to do my doctoral work. And then I ended up in the U.S. for a couple of years on the Navajo reservation. I ended up in Gallup, New Mexico as a high school principal there. Loved that environment. And then Jakarta, Singapore, and now here in Ethiopia. So for me, it's been, uh, you know, 27 years of just absolutely loving all the, the variety of students that I've been able to work with, the variety of teachers. It's been the thrill of a lifetime.
0: Yeah. The, uh, i mean obviously other than the obvious which is you know living abroad and and just being able to be in all of these different places uh let's let's take the focus more generically and just say like what do you, what do you see as the biggest upsides to teaching internationally like you know at the risk of maybe generalizing a little bit and stereotyping are there are there certain maybe characteristics of people who might find international teaching you know appealing in theory but ultimately it doesn't really go well for them like in other words I guess what I'm asking is yeah what are what are the upsides of teaching internationally and who shouldn't consider going international if you will
1: yeah you know that's that's a fantastic question Um, you know I I, uh, I'll say this as somebody who hires a lot of people there are several things that I will never hire somebody Uh, you know, when they bring this up in an interview, I'll I'll say, yep, sorry, this is not for you. Two things. One, if they're running away from something, (laughs) if they're running away from a bad situation, it's like, I just got to get out of my town. I got to get out of my community. uh, More often than not, they're really actually trying to run away from themselves and they're going to bring themselves with them. So this, uh, this whole notion that you can kind of run away from your problems i think that's a non-starter for for an international school because those those challenges whatever they are that you're facing or someone is facing in their own town they they are actually multiplied when you are in an environment where you don't have your support network you don't have your grandparents on the other side of the town on uh, the other side of town you don't have the friends you grew up with and you are now alone in a foreign city without that network. And those problems actually still follow you. So mm-hmm. that's one thing I think if you're just trying to escape, not the right thing. Uh, the other one is if, uh, is if you are thinking that you are going to be, um, uh, maybe it's still escapism that you're somehow going to find happiness Uh, somewhere else besides where you are I think that's also something that's intrinsic you either love teaching wherever you are whatever school you're in you love the kids you're with Uh or or you don't and and to think that finally you're gonna meet some student that you really really students that you really enjoy working with overseas (laughs) sorry that's not gonna happen kids are kids Teachers are teachers, schools are schools, and and in that sense, uh, you're kind of stuck with yourself. So I would say if those are your factors, international schools not for you.
0: Right. But uh, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you can't run away from yourself, can you? Or or can't the things. Run away here. from yeah. yourself. Yeah. For sure. But so if, how does it? Oh, go ahead. Go ahead, Tim.
1: Yeah. So I was you know the flip side obviously is if you long for adventure, if you long to really push the envelopes of education and you really want to be in an environment that actually supports your innovative, creative, progressive thinking that is unshackled by some of the bureaucratic and and some of the the things that maybe a public school uh, system, wherever you are, um, kind of it weighs you down if you're looking for to kind of explore and push those boundaries. And you're one of those teachers that really wants to see what true education can look like at the highest possible level then international education is, is absolutely the right place for you.
0: Yeah. So if a teacher is thinking about someone who's never gone internationally and they're intrigued by it, um, you know, what is the process? Like, how how does someone go international? What is the process? How do they get hired? And maybe a little bit of what should their expectations be? Because I know in the international community, uh, there's often the conversations about the Cadillac schools versus the other schools. And and so maybe just, you know, how does somebody go about if, if a teacher listening right now is interested in going international and exploring that possibility? What is the hiring process? and And what should reasonable expectations be for a first time kind of international educator?
1: Yeah, first of all, international schools, there are international schools in virtually every country in the world and and most major cities in the world. So there are thousands of international schools and not all international schools are created equal and and some schools are some international schools are called international schools, but they're actually national schools for very wealthy people or but true international schools if you're talking about true international schools where you're serving the international community the people that are temporarily residing in that country for whatever reason for diplomacy for business for for ngo work um, there is a there is a process to go through and the process starts pretty much now in in october Uh, October, November is when it starts. And there are some organizations that are very easy to register with. One of them is called Search and Associates. Another one is called International School Services. Uh, These are organizations that uh, have massive databases of opportunities so you can register with them, submit your CV, get your letters of recommendation in order. And then there's a whole database that they have and they'll say you know in in uh, Dubai they're looking for a middle school English teacher and in Addis we're looking for a curriculum coordinator with experience in the IB and in Brazil they're looking for uh, an elementary school PE teacher Uh, and so you can actually either apply directly to these schools through these uh, databases or you can go to what we call our job fairs. And these job fairs are held around the world. They're usually held uh, December, January, February-ish. There are job fairs in Boston, in New York, in Washington, D.C., in, in Vancouver, uh, in, in Iowa. There are job fairs in London. Uh, there are job fairs in Bangkok. So wherever you are in the world, there's a job fair close to you. And you can actually go. And, and all of us, heads of school, we show up. There might be 100 schools represented or 300 schools represented. And we have our list of jobs that we're actually, uh, you know, wanting to hire from and uh, for. And so people show up at our little booth and say, hey, I'm a middle school English teacher. I'm looking for a job in Africa. And we set up an interview. We talk and, and, it, and uh, we offer jobs right on the spot. Uh,
0: wow. so
1: that's kind of a, a to get into the system. That's a great way to get a face to face with somebody like me, who is actually hiring, I may have you know, 16 positions to hire for for the next year, and if your position, my position aligns with your experience, uh, we may strike a deal, and I, I'll sign a contract, and you're 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 able to come. And uh, you know these packages. If you're looking kind of just comparatively, we our packages are are extremely competitive in terms of. Uh, you know, what we actually provide. I mean, people pay a lot of money to send their kids to our schools. And so therefore we have pretty generous packages, including flights to and from your home of record, including, including free housing and health insurance, you know, all of that kind of stuff. And then, but the biggest aspect of, uh, or the biggest benefit from a, from a package perspective is the ability to save money. You know, if you are, basically imagine being paid at the same rate as you would uh in in a north american public school but there's zero tax in most of these places you don't pay any taxes and uh you don't have any expenses uh and so virtually you know barring your your tgif money and and your (laughs) day-to-day expenses uh most of your yeah. income is savings, so I think that's from a financial perspective. That's the big thing.
0: Yeah, for sure. No one, no wonder international educators get to travel so much. They, <laughs> they have. Yeah, that's good. So uh, I want to shift one more time here, Tim, because I know that um, personalized learning is a passion of yours. Uh, in the book "Personalized Learning in a PLC at Work," you, along with Sasha, Mike, and Austin, did something I thought was very clever, and that was turning the four guiding questions of a PLC into first-person questions for learners. You know, what what do I want to learn and how will I know I've learned it, et cetera. Um, I think it's a a really brilliant structure to cultivate student agency. So I'm gonna start with an open-ended question. And that is, how did your passion for personalized learning develop and sort of what was the inspiration to write about it?
1: Yeah, thanks, Tom. Uh, Thanks for your kind words on that. Um, when I was at Singapore, in Singapore American School, uh, we became a, a PLC exemplar school uh, during my tenure there as high school principal. Uh, and so we were what we would consider a pretty highly effective school. And uh, we were asking, our teachers were meeting in teams and asking the four critical questions. Our students' achievement uh, was going up and up and up. And, and uh, we were yeah, firing at all cylinders from a teacher uh, Control perspective, but we we started to ask ourselves. Were we actually asking the right question? Number one When we are saying what the kids need to know understand and be able to do We had an answer. It was our guaranteed and viable curriculum it was our learning targets, etc But we started asking ourselves is this actually what they need to know understand and be able to do in order to be successful and, and thrive in this ever-changing world and so um, I ended up leading some teams a uh, uh, Sponsored by the school, really to over a hundred different schools uh, around the world, taking teams of teachers to these schools from, in New Zealand and Australia and China and North America and Canada, all over the place, Finland, uh, and and looking at kind of the the school of the future and saying, you know, if we were to build a school from scratch, what would it actually look like? Mm-hmm. And that's where this. Notion that actually the big difference between what we were doing in Singapore when we had teachers asking and answering the four critical questions. The big difference when we were looking at the most innovative and progressive schools around the world was that the students were actually in control of their own learning, Uh, And and it was just this paradigm shift that I Uh, And my teammates uh, started saying, "Uh uh-oh, we are in trouble because right now our students are achieving at very, very high levels when it comes to standardized tests, when it comes to AP and IB and all of these kinds of external examinations because we knew exactly what they needed to know, understand, and be able to do, and we were getting them there. But our students actually didn't know how to learn themselves. They had no learning how to learn skills and and if they were you know more open ended problems and and if you asked them to apply their learning yes you could take a, a multiple choice physics test and and do extremely well on it but if you were actually to apply that physics into something more innovative and creative our our students were actually st- stopped and i i remember visiting uh in a part of this research that i was doing visiting all these schools i actually visited um uh about 100 universities around the world as well and asking them what was the secret sauce like how do we get into how do we get more of our kids into your top universities etc i was i was meeting with the dean of the college of the the dean of admissions at stanford university and and i introduced myself and we had set up an appointment i met with him and he he said oh you're from the uh, you're from the 800 club and and uh and I said, well, what do you mean the 800 Club? He says, well, there are so many kids from Singapore who get 800 on the SAT that uh, we just call you the 800 Club. We can't tell your kids apart. And I said, well, what do you mean? He says, well, to be frank, your kids are boring. And, uh, and so they were getting perfect SAT scores. Yeah. They were getting perfect GPAs. But actually Stanford University was saying they're actually boring and they're actually not distinguishing themselves. And so these two things uh, combined really made us realize that mm-hmm. that we needed to not just create well-rounded kids who actually had a solid foundation, a base uh, of, uh, of kind of academic skills and knowledge, but they actually needed to be pointy in terms of pursuing their passion and interest. Mm-hmm. And so it's out of that that the idea of personalization, personalized learning and student agency mm-hmm. really crystallized in my mind and then started saying, well, actually, we are a PLC school, this this learning process that we already have in place with regards to teacher agency and teacher learning process, meaning asking and answering the four critical questions, what if we actually turned that around and had the students ask the same questions? Uh, And and so that's kind of how it ended up, that's how it was born.
0: Yeah, I think it's I think it's brilliant. And, and you know, the lesson from Stanford University uh, is one that should be well taken around the world, including North America, where teachers and principals and parents and kids can think that. And I mean, obviously, you have to have a fairly high achievement level or GPA to get into Stanford. We recognize that. But the idea that that's the only thing, that myth that the only thing that matters is your GPA, you clearly were told point blank that that, that is not the case and that uh, you have to have that well roundedness. Uh, in in your, in your I would say resume, but in your transcript or in in your application process. So um, let's talk a little bit about what's happening at ICS. Now, obviously, like a lot of things, personalized learning is a work in progress, um, but I think you really have forged an innovative path with personalized learning at the school. So I just want to give you an opportunity to highlight some of the things that are happening at your school. Again, knowing that things are always progressing and we're always trying to get better, but What are some of the things that you're proud of in terms of what what personalized learning looks like at ICS?
1: Yeah, so thanks uh, for this opportunity. There's two ways that uh, somebody can personalize or a school can personalize, help personalize learning for for students. And One is I would call the the learning pathways, the, the personalized learning pathways, and then there's the personalized learning progressions. And I think both of these are super important, and, but there's an easiest place to start. And the easiest place to start, and this is where we've started, is the personalized learning pathways. And what that means is that students need to be given the opportunity to actually personalize the, the, the direction of their learning. Basically, question one, what is it that I want to know, understand, and be able to do? And so what we've done is created what we call PLEX, which is Personalized Learning Experience, uh, and we have basically uh, dedicated the last five weeks of the school year for students to actually begin with question one. And so we, we we end all of our academic courses, all math, science, social studies, history, et cetera. They're done five weeks before the end of the school year. And our students go into what we call Plex. And so they sit down with an advisor and they say, what do I want to know, understand and be able to do? Okay, I want to, understand how things fly. Uh, And so now they're embarking on this personalized learning quest, and they're starting to do research, and they're starting to actually pursue their interests, their passions, et cetera, et cetera. Now, we have clear academic standards that they have to demonstrate mastery of. So we call these our transdisciplinary skills. And we're saying, well, regardless of what your passion is or what you're going to pursue as your point of interest, you are going to be doing academic research writing. So it's, you're going to, end this is going to culminate after five weeks into an academic paper. You're going to, you're going to cite your research. We're also going to be looking at data. So you're going to be doing data analytics as a part of this. You're also going to be presenting and you're going to have presenting skills. You're also going to be collaborating. So you have collaborative skills. And so we have criteria that they need to, Uh, benchmarks, if you will, that they need to demonstrate mastery of that are what we would call transdisciplinary. So whether you're looking at aeronautical engineering, whether you're looking at 18th century Russian poetry, or whether you're looking at exercise physiology, you have clear academic transdisciplinary standards that you're demonstrating mastery of. But it's all driven by your question one and your question two, because now you have to ask, as a student, you have to ask, How am I gonna demonstrate that I understand how things fly? So now I'm gonna be building a drone out of popsicle sticks or whatever it is. So now I understand the the laws of of aerodynamics. and I understand gravity and I can demonstrate, actually apply it to my learning. And then I'm also asking question three and saying, what am I gonna do when I'm stuck? What What am I going to do when I'm not learning anymore? So now I'm developing basically the RTI skills that I'm actually personalizing my own interventions and saying, so what are the resources that are available to me? How do I actually find the answer if I don't know where it is? How do I actually get additional support? And then asking question four, what am I gonna do when I already know it? And that launches us down a deeper inquiry, deeper learning, uh, and deeper quest or, or pursuit of passion. So again, these questions Begin what uh, basically frame what we call the learning process, which is actually the the most important lesson, regardless of learning how things fly. It's actually learning how to learn, and this is the way you go through this process to learn how to learn.
0: Is that not the, uh, you know, I've, I've said for years, the best preparation for university or life after high school is understanding myself as a learner uh, because of, you know, the the you know the university experience is so hands-off in many ways. Uh, and you really do have a lot of time where you need to be disciplined. You need to understand yourself. You need to learn how to learn. Uh, I think such a valuable lesson. So would that be the advice you would give to somebody who is, you know, inspired by the idea of personalized learning, but doesn't know where to start. Like where, where would they start? What advice would you give a teacher? Would it be that pathway trying to find ways uh, to help students along that pathway? If they, if they wanted to start tomorrow or they wanted to start next week with trying to personalize, what are some first steps or baby steps that teachers could take in order to begin this journey of personalized learning?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Actually, I would (laughs) I would actually recommend if you're thinking about becoming that innovative progressive school, you've got to start by becoming a PLC Uh, and and to me that is where you start. That's where you start the journey. You have to have teams of teachers who have absolute clarity as to what they're learning what they want students or what they need students to know understand and be able to do you have to have clarity as to what you're going to expect as evidence To demonstrate mastery of whatever the learning target is, you have to have clear intervention strategies and you have to have clear uh, extension strategies for kids who already know it. That's actually where you start. And and if you kind of move down the innovative path before you're ready, before you actually have this PLC down pat, you are actually going into the wild, wild west of innovation. So, I mean, so let's say you are now a PLC. You have, you've done the hard work. You have collaborative teams in place, and you have a guaranteed and viable curriculum. You have your assi- your uh, your assessments for, that are aligned to your learning targets, and you have your intervention strategies. You have all of that. Now, I think the the you start. There's two ways that I'll recommend. First, you start by actually releasing the questions one by one. So. And we recommend in our book, we recommend that you actually start with question four. There is no reason why a collaborative team should be uh, thinking or creating ways for kids to extend their own learning. Students should be extending their own learning. That's a place you should release question four. So once you have question four, students should now be saying, now that i get this i've already demonstrated mastery of this learning target now what do i want to do how am i going to apply it into the real world how am i going to make real life connections with this thing how am i going to actually go beyond the 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 curriculum because of what i'm interested in what i'm interested in so students should always be able to have agency over question four and then i would go to question three we you know we, we design all these interventions for kids who are struggling and yet Often it's the student who's not at the table. The student needs to be developing the skills necessary to get out of the learning pit. So students need to own question three and you can do it gradually by releasing. Then you can release question two, which basically says, okay, here's how I would like you to demonstrate mastery of this learning skill as a teacher, but how would you like to demonstrate mastery Mm -hmm. of this learning skill? You'll be surprised at how much creativity and innovation will come when a student is saying, really? I can actually demonstrate mastery of this skill in a different way than, than was mm-hmm. prescribed by the class. Yes. Show me, this is the standard. This is clearly what you need to show me mastery of. How do you want to show me mastery of it? And then ultimately you get to question one, you say, okay, mm-hmm. now what do you want to know and stand and be able to do? Yeah. You ask the question. So I, I, I would start by kind of going backwards through the yeah. questions four, three, two, yeah. one. I think then once you get to be able, able to ask question one, now you're talking about programs like Plex, where you're saying, yeah, actually, what are the transdisciplinary skills that every child needs to be able to do? That you need this level of, of literacy, you need this level of numeracy, that you to be able to analyze data, you need to be able to write research papers. You can do that by asking your own question one. You don't have to have, you can have the students in control of their own learning at that point.
0: Yeah. No, I, 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 that's brilliant, Tim. I mean, the the idea that as a collaborative team within a PLC, we are working through questions one through four, while at the same time releasing responsibility to the students questions four through one in that manner. I think that's a that's great advice for for uh for teams um and i and i and i think your point is well taken if you know that you maximize the success by being a, a collaborative team in a plc where there's just an alignment with what we're all doing but but even if you're the only teacher that structure of releasing those four questions in that manner i think is a really great place for people to start so um that you know, Tim. That's, a, that's I think that's a great place for us to sort of wrap up the, this part of the the interview, and we're going to finish up uh, today with a little bit of fun. I'm going to put you on the spot a little bit, and then I've got uh, one more serious question that I've asked everybody. So normally at this part of the interview, I, I go through a series of kind of this or that choices. Uh, but today I'm just going to ask you some fun, open-ended questions. And uh, again, uh, just a chance for people to get to know Tim a little bit on on a personal level, as opposed to just the professional side. So I've got five questions lined up for you. And I'm just going to ask you these questions and you take the questions where you need to. And so we'll do five quick ones and then we'll get to that, uh, that other question. So here's the first one. The first one is, uh, let's talk about where you are right now in Ethiopia. What is the most fascinating thing that you've learned about either the Ethiopian people or the Ethiopian culture. What's one of the most fascinating things you've learned about being there?
1: Um, yeah, for me, uh, music has always been something that I'm super passionate about. Uh, i loved getting to know the Ethiopian jazz culture here, which is very connected to uh, the reggae Rasta culture in Jamaica. Uh, and in fact, the the... The Emperor Haile Selassie uh, donated land for the Rastafarians to come back and repatriate here in in Ethiopia. And so there's a really cool blend of uh, Ethiopian jazz and Rasta reggae uh, that I just love here. And it's a a fascinating uh, cultural
0: experience. Well, I remember when I was there a couple of years ago, you took us to the uh the the jazz club and yeah. I was just like, you know, I, I I this is a phenomenal place with amazing musicians yeah. and uh, and we're in Ethiopia and it was just it was really fantastic. Yeah. Um second question, uh what movie can you watch over and over and over again and never get tired of it?
1: Oh, this is gonna call me out. And i I hope my wife is not listening. Uh Gladiator. 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 My movie. I just love that movie. I can watch it over and over and over again. And it's just yes. one of those things that it's that combination of of love and heroism and, and yeah. just
0: pure passion. I just love it. Yeah, that the intensity of that opening scene. And, oh and uh, yeah. are you not entertained? <laughs> <laughs> That's oh. how I
1: feel like sometimes as a superintendent, you know.
0: There you go. There you go. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay, question three. What is the lamest dessert that people try to pass off as a dessert?
1: The lamest dessert that people, well, you know, I'm sorry, I, you know, I grew up in France. And so, you know, if I'm thinking desserts, I'm thinking French pastries or whatever, but I'm just saying, you know, the, the, the desserts in Asia, uh, I'm just, I have a really hard time with things that are jiggly and, and, and rubbery and, you know, passed off, except for, I mean, the, the best dessert in Asia is obviously mango sticky rice in Thailand. Yeah. That is the phenomenal dessert, but
0: everything else yeah.
1: I just, I'll, I'll go to a French bakery instead.
0: There you go. You don't want your dessert still moving 10 minutes after you put it down, right? Uh, Okay, here's one. I'm going to put you on the spot a little bit. Uh, What's the most ridiculous way that you've been injured?
1: Oh, come on, Tom. (laughs) No. So I was, I was a, um, well, okay, no, I'm going to go down this path. So I was uh, speaking at a conference in, uh, in Kuala Lumpur and uh, and I was living in Jakarta at the time in Indonesia. And so I was leaving for this conference. It was a head of school conference. I was going to speak at it and everything. But there was a golf tournament in the as a part of this administrative conference. And so i I didn't want to show people that I had my golf bag, you know, ready to go along with my suitcase, so I had my golf. But anyways, I ended up going to this conference and, uh, we're playing a round of golf when we should be at, at actually, um, uh, you know, a workshop, and uh, the the heavens open up and it is raining so hard, like it only can in Malaysia, and everything just got flooded in the whole the whole golf course. And and I, you know, swung and shanked, and the ball just went so far out in the middle of nowhere. So I I was running to go and get my ball because it was raining so hard and i sprained my ankle in one of those uh sprinkler system holes that were just covered with water so i couldn't see and i just completely wrenched my my ankle so i end up having to go to the hospital i'm on crutches i've got a cast on i got the whole thing and now i'm coming back from the administrative conference to my uh my people and they're like weren't you just at a leadership conference i'm like yeah yeah you know how did you sprain well <laughs> you know, a fight broke out, you know, in the middle of my session, you know,
0: so right. <laughs> Gosh. I know, try to explain that, right? You just go to an education conference, you come back on crutches. There's got to be a good story behind yes. that. Okay, last one. Um, for those of you listening, you may not, of course, know, but uh, Tim loves his motorcycle. So yes. the question is, uh, if you could ride anywhere in the world that you haven't yet, where would you want to ride your motorcycle? Where's, where's the dream motorcycle trip?
1: Oh my goodness. You know, I, I've ridden my motorcycle in many, many, many countries. Um, in fact, some of, the, some of the best roads in the world. So I, there, there are very few roads that I would, would say that I haven't ridden. But I, one of the ones that I, that I would like to do at some point would be to, to go from, from Egypt, from kind of Cairo to Cape Town uh, and to do oh, yeah. to just cross across the entire continent, it would take a good chunk of time. But I think, uh, you know, the the riding in Africa is kind of the last frontier for motorcyclists and uh, mm-hmm. uh, full of full of wonder and adventure. So that to me is a, is a yeah. bucket list item for sure.
0: That would be an incredibly long journey. I think, you know, looking at a map does not give you a sense of how large Africa is as a continent. So uh, that would be an incredible journey. Okay, last question. This is the final question. I asked this of all uh, guests uh, that I interview, and it has to do with success. One of the things that I'm trying to do on the podcast is, is sort of talk a little bit about success and happiness in life. And so the question that I've asked everyone is this, if a random person stopped you on the street and asked you, what is your definition of success? How would you answer them? What would you say?
1: It's interesting because in my first book that I that I wrote um, called Children at Promise, uh, I actually define redefine success for the sake of the book. The book is about character development and um, the character traits that are developed through adversity and relationships. And I define success as. to to positively contribute to the moral and social fabric, the social and moral fabric of society. Mm -hmm. So this idea that that to be truly successful, you have to be a contributor and not a taker. And I think that a lot of definitions of success are about acquisitions of things, acquisitions of degrees, acquisitions of of jobs and money taking things. Um, And I just believe that uh, success is about giving things and it's about contributing Mm -hmm. things. Yeah. And so uh, that's kind of how I've lived my life is about, you know, being successful and hanging out with successful people who are contributors to yeah. uh, the moral and social fabric of, of our society. And I think that that's um, I hold that very dear.
0: Yeah, I think that's a, a great uh, way to phrase that, that so much success is about acquisition versus, you know, what you what you do give and 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 what you contribute to to society uh tim this i can't thank you enough this was great uh i really enjoyed reconnecting with you today and certainly uh some of the interesting stories uh about about all the things that are happening uh from covid to the international education to the personalized learning i think that uh i just am really feeling uh I'm feeling energized from this because uh, I'm just excited about the work you're doing and excited about the potential for so many schools to really reshape what education looks like uh, here in the 21st century. So again, uh, thank you, Tim, for for joining me today. And I hope uh, sometime soon we can, we can do this again.
1: Absolutely. Thank you so much All for right. having me on.
0: Yeah. Cheers. Thanks, Tim. Cheers. One story that caught my attention in the news this week uh, was from Texas. The Texas Senate Education Committee held a hearing to discuss best practices for recruiting and training teachers throughout the state and came out with, uh, according to the testimony, they came out with five recommendations. Uh, So I'm gonna list these recommendations and then talk about a few of them. Uh, The first was that teachers should be trained to teach effectively online. Number two, teachers should receive continuous coaching throughout their careers. Number three, teachers need training that is most useful to them. Number four, the training requirements should be in one easily accessible place. And five, the records should be kept according to a common framework. Now, those last two are more Texas-specific in terms of where they hold those requirements and, and what kind of framework they use in terms of teacher training. So I'm not really going to address those two, but I want to talk about those first three, which I think are actually really positive recommendations. The first being that teachers should be trained to teach effectively online. If there's anything that this crisis and the pandemic has taught us, it is that being able to maneuver ourselves into an online environment is something we should be ready for. This doesn't mean that all teaching should go online, but you know there were many states and provinces thinking about online learning long before the pandemic occurred, thinking about snow days and disruptions that occur because of acute situations or natural disasters, things happen. and. Having a little bit more training on how to actually deliver effective instruction online would be wise to think about going forward. You know, there's a real difference, of course, between teaching online and actually doing it in a way that is effective. So that is kind of, uh, I think, a really great recommendation because it's forcing a little bit of modernization because we know that if anything works online, it will work face-to-face. Now, the reverse isn't always true. Face-to-face, not all face-to-face works in an online environment. So. I really like that recommendation. The the second one about teachers receiving continuous coaching throughout their careers, I I, I love that too. I mean, what's to argue, um, especially in those first few years, right? If we all think about our first few years of teaching, in some places you can kind of be left on your own, and administrators and others kind of do their best to and and, and you know support you, chip in and and try to guide you, but you can really feel like you're on an island in those first few years, and and it's probably why among many reasons why many teachers leave the profession in these first five years. So I love the idea of continuous coaching and maybe that continuous coaching is something that occurs more uh, in the beginning of your career and then it tapers off as time goes on. Not that veteran teachers don't need coaching too because I think we can all use coaching and support and someone to talk to and bounce ideas off of and all those things but really in those first few years would be really useful. And the last one, teachers need training in that which is most useful uh, to them. And, I, you know, again, utility of the training is really important. And, and uh, you know, obviously, from my perspective, I would say that what teachers still, although it has improved, what teachers are still not getting in their training enough is the assessment literacy piece. They're not uh, spending enough time. Now, I know that some individual colleges and universities are addressing the assessment question. And I would most certainly say that that issue is much improved than it was a decade ago or even longer ago. But still, you know, including in that usefulness for me would be assessment, because as you heard me say in a previous episode, you know, assessment is the engine that drives so much of what we do. And being trained in sound assessment practices, I think, would be really helpful. So I really like those recommendations and I think, you know, they're hard to argue with. Um, but the idea of of being prepared to teach online, again, it might be only for a week, it might be only for a few days, and it might be a much longer stretch like we've experienced now. Having that continuous coaching and being trained in things that are useful to you and and have a lot of utility in the classroom, uh, hard to argue with those recommendations, and I think they're pretty positive. Our second story comes out of the province of Alberta, and I got to tell you, this story's got me a little fired up, so I apologize if I stumble on my words a little bit, but There were some documents, you'll recall back in a previous episode, I uh, mentioned the province of Alberta back in August and made some announcements about the direction that their curriculum was going. And I was, um, again, you know, not exactly thrilled with the things the minister of education was saying, but, you know, wanted to leave it open to, you know, see where it went. And and now we're seeing where it's going. And the advisors that were picked by the Alberta government, this is a story by Janet French of, of the CBC, The curriculum advisors handpicked by the Alberta government are recommending changes to the kindergarten to grade four curriculum for both fine arts and social studies that would eliminate all references to the residential schools or the equity issue here in Canada. But seven and eight year olds should learn about feudalism, Chinese dynasties, and Homer's odyssey in social studies. Are you kidding me? What is going on here? that they also said that first graders should learn Bible and first nation verses about creation as poetry and fourth. I'm sorry, this is not funny. Fourth graders should learn that most non white Albertans are Christian. What is happening here? Are are, are they serious? Is is this a serious proposal for the Alberta curriculum? Um, Not only are these policies regressive and antiquated, they're racist. And I would honestly, if, if there's anyone out there listening that would like to come on the podcast and tell me why I'm wrong, uh, please do so. Send me an email, uh, you know, contact me on social media. Because as I'm reading this article, I'm thinking, you know, 1955 called it wants its curriculum recommendations back. You know, I don't, I don't understand what is what is happening here. Well, I think I do understand what is happening here with Alberta's United Conservative Party uh, that was elected in 2019 and has completely shifted the direction of the previous government. And that does happen at times because it's really hard for a new government to come in when they're elected and support a policy that the previous government was pursuing. It happened in British Columbia in the early 1990s. Just as a side note, we had a an education overhaul in the late 80s and the early 90s. And, and what emerged was this document called the year 2000. And in the early 90s, there was a change in government and that politically that new government should have supported the policies because they were very progressive and very in line with them politically. But because it was supported by the previous government, they just couldn't support it. And here again, we have a situation where this, according to Professor Keith Barton, who is at the Indiana University, uh, he's a curriculum specialist in social studies says that if, if Alberta pursues this, that the province of Alberta will become a laughing stock when it comes to their education system. And Alberta is not that. Alberta has had some tremendous results, both PISA, you heard that before, and so many other things. I mean, I'm just, I'm just absolutely sort of at a loss for words that thinking about how a government would start to, in this era, in acutely what has happened in 2020, and where we are with equity and the work around not just Black Lives Matter, but Indigenous lives and the work here in Canada that we need to do uh, to bring about real reconciliation, that we have a province in in our country pursuing a, a curriculum revision that for me, I mean, the, the, the nicest thing I can say is it completely misses the mark. They're talking about, you know, making sure that students have core knowledge, and I'm using air quotes with that. You know, terms like core knowledge, or you remember back in August, the story was about the traditional way of teaching. Those words, core knowledge or traditional, are just codes or even dog whistles to two things. One, they are about overemphasizing facts as the end goal of the education experience. And don't get me wrong, you, you need to know things, of course, because you can't think critically unless you're thinking critically about something. But knowledge should be the means, not the end. But when you hear things like core knowledge or traditional, where you know, there's that sort of regressive kind of approach where assessment starts to get reduced to memorization and, and recall and, and, you know, again, going back to a, an era that is, is long over. And the second... Uh, sort of dog whistle here is just a continued support of this incredibly narrow sort of view of education through this eurocentric lens that that just continues to support the narrowing, not the expansion of what students learn, what they're exposed to, and the experiences that they have and how inclusive they can be. I you look, I, I probably shouldn't get this fired up, but I am because it, to me, um, like I said, if, if there's someone out there that can enlighten me and come on the podcast and just help me understand why these policies uh, are, are the right direction for the problem-solver, I'm open to hearing from you, honestly. But I just don't know what you would say to uh, d- defend this dire- direction or defend. Um, it's It's ridiculous. And to even seriously consider this direction is is the ultimate privilege of sticking your head in the sand and not being aware of of what is truly going on today um I I hope they change direction I hope enough public pushback is coming but honestly um, I, I I sort of you may recall when I talked about this before I, I thought this was probably, you know, when they said words like a return to traditional teaching, I was hopeful that it wasn't going in that direction, but now we see that it absolutely was. So again, anyone out there want to come on, tell me why I'm wrong. I'm open to being wrong, but I think I'm right. In Assessment Corner this week, I received a question from Nicole, who's an assistant principal in Nevada. And the question really centers around the correlation between high school grades and college graduation. Nicole is asking about what do we do in answering someone's assertion about the predictability of high school grades and graduation. Now she's referencing an Edutopia uh, article or interview with Angela Duckworth. And in the article, Duckworth is quoted as saying the following, quote, it turns out that standardized tests like the SAT and ACT are predictive of college graduation, but they're not as predictive as high school grades. We found that the reason that grades are so predictive of finishing off your college degree is that grades are a very good index of your self-regulation. Your ability to stick with things, your ability to regulate your impulses, your ability to delay gratification, and to work hard instead of goofing off. Nicole does say that she is assuming Duckworth is referring more to traditional grades that may include some behavioral components because it does not make mention in the article about standards-based grading. So that would be an assumption. And Alex Bowers has done some some research in this area as well, and others have as as well. There is some truth to the fact that research does indicate that a more comprehensive grade, uh, what Sue Brookhart often refers to as a hodgepodge grade, is more predictive of college attendance and success. Now, on the surface, that might seem like an argument against standards-based grading, but let me tell you why it's not. Here's a question that I often ask participants in the workshops that I conduct on assessment and grading. I ask them this, what is the most important purpose of assessment and grading? I'm gonna give you a binary choice. Is it to make predictions about future performance or is it to identify specific areas in need of intervention? Now normally, again, I would ask this question in advance of sharing any of the information I've just shared with you about the correlation because I want the audience to answer without bias. What I say to them is that choosing one will sacrifice the other. That's why this is a binary choice. So both is not only a cop-out, it's just, it's an, you know, it's an untenable answer. It's just invalid. So when I ask the question, the unanimous response is always intervention. And that's the issue. When researchers are asking the question, what is most predictive of college success and graduation? They're simply looking for that. And in many cases are likely not concerned about what other things might be sacrificed if a school then takes the predictability of those grades and uses that or implements that as a policy. So again, let's go back to the mandate. If we take the hodgepodge approach, we may be able to make a more accurate prediction about future performance in college or university, but we are going to definitely sacrifice our ability to specifically identify areas in need of intervention. At best, that will be opaque. On the other hand, The separation of achievement and behavior and then the subsequent separation of standards or strands, categories, domains might sacrifice our ability to make predictions about college success, but it will actually help the K-12 school be more specific in terms of what comes next for learners. So you see, when you emphasize one, you sacrifice the other. So it comes back to the primary mandate of K-12 schools. I mean, The last time I checked, the mandate was all students reaching high levels of achievement. Since we know that some students need longer to learn, intervention, that which advances the learner along their learning trajectory, has to be prioritized. Having a system that simply points out how unsuccessful you will be in college or university is incongruent with a mission and a vision that strives to see all learners reach excellence. And how can you even really make that prediction when the size of the university, the program of study, the different stages of development, student efficacy, the family situation, financial pressures, acute situations, and all of that are going to also be factors along the way. Now, maybe there's some correlation uh, more at the senior level, but what relevance would making that prediction in, say, middle school have, or even the lower grades of high school? Like, in middle school, are we going to look at a student and say, listen, Maria, I know you're 11, uh, but your grades indicate you're not going to be successful in university. okay then Maria looks at us and says, well, okay, w- what do I need to do to be ready and to do well in university? Well, now we have to talk about intervention. What is going to advance her along her learning trajectory, which is going to be compromised if we're taking a hodgepodge approach to grading and reporting. Now, the other challenge, of course, is when you include habits and attributes and effort. I mean, all sort of accuracy issues aside, the other challenge, of course, including the habits and attributes like effort, engagement, etc." cetera, is determining whether the student is actually authentically engaged or just sort of going through the motions or just appearing to be those things. Then there's the issue of reliability. Are all teachers measuring the same things in the same manner or against the same criteria, the same levels of performance? Where's the consistency there? The more you want one symbol, descriptor or letter of the alphabet to say, the less it will say any of it. I mean, at some point, a grade will become so diluted that we really can't learn anything from it. Now, I'm not saying we can learn a tremendous amount from a grade on the surface anyway in the first place. I'm not going to go as far as to say as some people do on social media that grades are arbitrary and they're useless. I mean, grades are only arbitrary and useless because the adults, the educators, have allowed them to become that. Arbitrary? Really? Teachers are just randomly assigning letters of the alphabet to students independent of any criteria or any standard or any performance, I I don't think that's happening. For me, I always err on the side of clarity and transparency. If, for example, a grade was solely determined by the overall quality of the demonstrations of learning that the student produced, then at least there would be some clarity and consistency about what constituted a grade and what was in the grade and what the grade is communicating. The difference in the mandate and what ultimately grades communicate is really up to schools and teachers to decide. We can't do one and the other. We have to, you know, one will sacrifice the other. And so we have to decide what ultimately do we want a grade to communicate and pursue that. And if we want the grade to communicate the level of achievement and then indicate you know, what's next or begin to on a much broader scale. Now, I'm not suggesting a grade gives you that granularity that formative assessment does, but you can learn something from a level of achievement if the student is based on a level of achievement that is consistent across all teachers and is based solely on performance criteria against a particular learning goal. So once we decide what our mandate is and what we ultimately want grades to communicate, then we need to fall on the side of that decision. And for me... The idea of just continually making predictions about future performance should definitely take a backseat to being able to identify next steps in learning. This week, I want to turn your attention to Instagram. If you're on Instagram, I would encourage you to follow Nadia Lopez. Her Instagram handle is at the Lopez effect, E-F-F-E-C-T. Uh, She is an anti-racist activist, um, work around racial equity as an educator. She describes herself as a storyteller, a visionary, a disruptor, and I can tell you she is all of those things. Um, She also frequently uses the Instagram Live feature, so her IG Lives are absolutely fantastic and, and definitely worth a watch. So if you want to be challenged, if you want to be enlightened, if you want to be pushed, I cannot encourage you enough to follow Nadia. So again, it's Nadia Lopez. It's at the Lopez effect on Instagram. I promise you, you won't be disappointed. That's all we have for today. A reminder again of the virtual workshops coming up. Grading from the inside out, the two-day workshop will be happening November 9th and 10th, as well as December 10th and 11th. Information about that can be found on the solutiontree.com website. Remember also to follow the podcast Twitter account for updates. That's at Tom Shimmer Pod. My personal Twitter handle is at Tom Shimmer. And please email me your questions for Assessment Corner or any suggestions for the podcast. That's tomshimmerpod at gmail.com. Next week, my guest will be Josh Ogilvie. He is a full time PE teacher in the Burnaby School District here in British Columbia. Now, some of you might be saying, Who? Well, I can tell you, Josh is not a household name yet but I'm sure he will be one day. He is a full-time PE teacher. And remember, one of my goals on this podcast is to highlight practitioners who embody excellence in practice, and Josh does just that. We're going to explore all things physical education, PE during COVID, the evolution of PE from a sort of Lord of the Flies type atmosphere to a much more sophisticated and serious approach to physical education. So I'm looking forward to that. Uh, Josh will also be my first Canadian guest. So Also something else to be uh, excited about. So again, thanks for joining me this week. Please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast. And if you're so inclined, maybe spread the word a little bit about the podcast. I would, of course, really appreciate that. Have a great week, everyone.